0: I invite you to Acts chapter 6, and as I prayed here, we do have a lengthy passage of Scripture to work our way through. There is a tremendous sermon or message here, a speech that is here in this text, and it is a, a lengthy one. It is also a profound one, and there's so much that will have to go unsaid, but if you'll gird up your minds, as the Apostle Paul might have put it, and we'll do some heavy plowing here today through this lengthy passage, but it is one that stands to bear testimony to who we are as the followers of Christ. As we page back through the dusty annals of human history, we find a primitive text that tells a very sad story. In a sketchy, black-and-white narrative with very little flesh on it, there's a man by the name of Cain who murders his brother Abel. The motive, as you remember from that text in Genesis, the motive of Cain's hideous crime is bitter jealousy against his brother. Cain is filled with rage. Why? Because God is approving of Abel's worship while he disapproves of Cain's worship. Cain goes through the motions of worshiping God, but Cain's worship is cold-hearted. It is self-centered, and it spurns God's counsel. Cain wants to approach God on his own terms, not on God's terms. Yet when God approves of faithful Abel's worship, Cain irrationally seethes with anger against his brother. Cain is utterly no one to blame but himself. And Cain has only one problem, and that is with God. Yet, since Cain refuses to repent of his sin and reconcile with God, since Cain cannot kill God, he kills Abel. Kills Abel because his walk with God exposes Cain's spiritual rebellion. Now, this ancient account concerning the history of the first family is not recorded merely for our interest or entertainment. As the storyline of Genesis and the rest of the Bible unfolds, we find here really a paradigm that plays out from cover to cover. There is a paradigm in the way that Cain responds to Abel. Until Jesus Christ returns, until He sets up His absolute rule across every inch of this planet, the people of God will continue to provoke the hostility of godless people and will continue to suffer at the hands of some of those people. We have in this primitive chapter of human history, Abel's blood crying out to God for vindication. Genesis chapter 4 and verse 10. But as we page our way through Scripture, we see this theme playing out over and again, and we come to the last chapter, a chapter that is yet to be written, future to us. And I'd like you to turn there just quickly as you keep your finger here in Acts chapter 6. But Going to Revelation chapter 6, notice these words. Speaking of a time yet, future to us. Revelation 6 and verse 9. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. Killed because of their loyalty to God's word, killed because of their witness for Christ. And they cried, verse 10, they cried out with a loud voice, O Sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Their vindication awaits, we notice here in verse 11, the full number of martyrs. Killed for following Christ, awaiting a fuller number of people who will die for that cause. Now false religions through this world seek to spread their influence by manipulation, by intimidation, and by accommodation. But the true church of Jesus Christ has always spread the gospel by dying. And martyrs will continue to pave the way of the gospel until the mission is accomplished. The narrow, exclusive, pride-smashing message of salvation by faith alone in Jesus Christ alone for salvation from God's wrath, when preached with integrity, this message will continue to infuriate sinners. And some of those sinners who wields some measure of power in this world, rather than repent, will revert to violence against Jesus' witnesses. Our calling as the church in the midst of this struggle is to hold fast in our affections to the purity and to the integrity of the message of salvation we proclaim in Jesus Christ. It's easy in the face of opposition to try to weaken the message, to try to dilute it. To try to stifle it. Our calling is to hold it pure. We must never compromise the truth that there is salvation in no other name under heaven, no other name but Christ, and that everyone who rejects Jesus remains an enemy of God, destined for eternal punishment. Holding such a conviction, proclaiming such a message, is not safe in this world but it is a clear indication of our loyalty to Jesus and the mission to which He has called us. We are edified in this pursuit, in this understanding, this self-understanding, and perhaps to this point you say this is crystal clear. It's obvious to me, praise God. It's not to everyone. There are people who gather and they commemorate the saints who have died, who have been martyred, and they eat meals, and they gather for church meetings, and they, in their own words, worship, yet have no love for Christ and his gospel in their own soul. They venerate the martyrs while rejecting the gospel. If we hold this dear, let us praise God, but holding this conviction, proclaiming this message, it is unsafe, but it does speak to our loyalty for Christ and the truth. And so we're edified here as we look to this passage. We look to the account of the first martyr in church history. The early church has not been around for long, perhaps for five years, and we find one here dying in behalf of that cause, Stephen, a faithful witness in the Jerusalem church. Now remember, concerning Stephen in the first part of chapter 6 of the book of Acts, We have him among six other men who are called to administrate meals for Hellenistic Greek-speaking widows in the Jerusalem church. How were they selected? Remember verse 3 of chapter 6. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. Now this Spirit of wisdom is to be applied to the feeding of these widows in the assembly. That's not where it needs to stop. And for Stephen, that is not where it stops. He is a man who takes that wisdom and continues his life as a witness of Jesus Christ. We find him disputing with other Jews and ultimately being arrested here in Jerusalem. Verse 8 of Acts 6, And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Grace and power. His soul characterized by the rare combination of spiritual beauty and strength. That grace and power showing itself in the performance of miraculous wonders and signs. To this point, that's only been accredited to Jesus and to His apostles. But working here with the authority of the apostles, Stephen also is showing these signs and wonders and working, we would imagine as we see in context, acts of grace upon people and healing and the like. Verse 9, Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Syrians and the Alexandrians and those from Cilician Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. We don't know how many synagogues are involved here, but remember Stephen is a Hellenist. He speaks the Greek language. He's come back, as others have, to the land of Jerusalem, to the land of Israel, but here in Jerusalem. These people are a bit on the fringes of society. And they're gathering here in this synagogue, identifying with one another, perhaps not welcomed in the Hebrew synagogues. But in any event, gathering here together, and he finds himself among them, disputing concerning Christ. That is, he's taking the Old Testament Scriptures, and he is speaking for Jesus in this synagogue. It's a great place to evangelize. You have people who have the basic ideas, uh, just the following God, who He is, of His uh, written Word. And you take that Old Testament text and you proclaim Jesus from it. This is His approach. Verse 10, But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which He was speaking. Stephen's speech in chapter 7 will reveal that he has been preaching a Christ-centered reading of the Old Testament. And they really can't dispute it. Specifically, he has challenged the faith of these Hellenists, namely their faith in the temple, in the land, in the law of Moses. Now remember, these people had grown up outside of the land and had sacrificed much to return to it. And their loyalty to the law of Moses was held in suspicion by the Hebraic Jews. So these are sensitive issues to these people. He challenges their misguided zeal for the land. Many of these people, if you really boiled it down, probably believed that they had returned to Israel for their salvation, to be right with God. And he puts his finger on that and says there's something better than the land. They had come back to the area of the temple here in Jerusalem, and he says there's something greater than the temple, something to which these things point, namely Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. He touches a sensitive nerve, and he does so because he knows their veneration for the land and the temple hinders them from receiving Jesus Christ as their Messiah. God gave them a person, a relationship, and they were holding on to form and ritual. Verse 11, Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. They did not repent. Couldn't argue against his wisdom. But not repenting, they turn against the man. And they seek to bring him down. They trump up charges and they work overtime to bring him to account. And when it says there, verse 11... Uh, men to say, speak blasphemous words, that he, or that he spoke blasphemous words against Moses and God, the context will bear out Moses probably referring to the law of Moses and God probably referring to the way that Stephen was looking at the temple, as 13 indicates. And they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth, there it is, the law, the temple, and Jesus. We don't like what he's saying about this Jesus and how it applies to the law and to the temple. This man never ceases to speak against this holy place and the law, for we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. So hearing Stephen's message, they got this much right. Times had changed. God was on the move. Something was very different. But they pulled together false witnesses. So they're they're hearing Stephen on one level, but they're also witnessing falsely against his position because they're really ignorant of what he's saying They are charging him falsely with despising the temple and despising Moses and the law. That's not it at all. He's saying that Jesus fulfills these things. So here again is a follower of Jesus standing before the Sanhedrin, the most powerful men in Israel who are saying, stop preaching the gospel. God makes it perfectly clear to the Sanhedrin that Stephen is a voice from God. They brought him before the council, verse 12, and gazing at him, verse 15, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. I haven't seen an angel. I'm not sure exactly what that means. But in, in the context of Scripture, it probably speaks of the angelic connection to the law of Moses. When Moses received the law, there was an angelic ministry that was there. And remember, he comes down off the mountain, and what happened to his face? It shone. And there is a sense here in which God is saying, with the shining face, apparently, of Stephen, this is a message from God. Hear it. Now this speech is profound. It's the longest speech in the book of Acts. And it is a speech that speaks to the heart and to the essence of the conflict between Israel and the gospel of Christ. The high priest said, are these things so? Showing remarkable integrity and loyalty to Christ. Stephen is not going to jump from here and defend himself. He could argue and say, they don't understand me. They're charging me falsely. I have not said that. I have said this. But please understand, I'm innocent of these charges. He doesn't bother with that. He just delivers the message of Christ. He delivers a faithful message concerning Christ crucified and risen. And in one sense, he almost concedes the charges... But he will proclaim the gospel, and he'll let the chips fall where they may. Now, as we move into this uh, speech, let me just make a few comments. As a Hellenist, Stephen is counted by the Sanhedrin among a disdained minority in Jerusalem. Think of this. They're gathered around him here. He's in a despised minority. These Greek-speaking people who have moved back to Jerusalem who really aren't part of us fully. They live most of their life elsewhere, hearing another language, learning other customs. They really don't have in the depths of their heart a love for God and His Word as we do. Further strike against Him. The Sanhedrin is fed up with people preaching in the name of Jesus. They've flogged people very recently for doing this, and they have told them to never speak in His name again. Here's another one they're not happy. And they are poised to smash this man. Number three, he stands before a gathering of some of the proudest, hardest hearts on the planet. These are among the most self-righteous individuals you could ever talk to. Number four, Stephen's sermon is going to attack the false hopes and the idolatrous loyalties of these self-satisfied power brokers, and he knows it. Well, to calm things a bit then, Stephen chooses to deliver his thesis through a recounting of Israel's history. And this was a common way to stress a theological point in that day. You might say, now these guys know all of this. And they do, in fact. He's not teaching them anything new here through much of this speech. But what he's doing is finding common ground by telling the story of God's choosing of Israel... And of the way that God works with Israel, He pacifies them to some degree, and He graciously communicates His point, quieting the crowd. But in this, and this is tough to pick up, but in this speech, you will see that He really addresses these pillars of the Jewish faith, the land, the law, and the temple. These were good things that had come from God, but these were things that they had come to depend upon and to trust in, God sending his Messiah, Jesus, they didn't need that. They had the temple, and they had the law, and they were in the land. He's going to address these things from various angles, using the history of Israel as he does so. So in addressing these three pillars, he defends the thesis that Jesus is the final and fully superior approach to God. He starts with Abraham, verse 2. "...but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others, who would enslave them and afflict them four hundred years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place." And he gave him the covenant of circumcision, and so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day, and Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. Again, there's nothing new. They're not learning anything here. But notice the subtle emphasis. Where was Abraham called? In Mesopotamia, among pagans. When he gets to the promised land, He's not even given a foot of it. It doesn't become his yet at this point, yet God, throughout Abraham's life, pours out his blessing upon this man. It is faith in the word of God, not living in the land, ultimately, that matters. Israel, in fact, will live in Egypt for four centuries. Not in the land, but in Egypt. And God, in his blessing upon Abraham, makes it clear that this will be part of the package. Four hundred years in Egypt. God works outside the land, says this Hellenist. Scary, scary conversation here. Indeed, the patriarchs, Joseph and Jacob, were uniquely blessed by God in Egypt. He goes on to say, verse 9, And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him. That's not a throwaway phrase. God was with Joseph in Egypt. And he rescued him from out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. The one God blesses is ruler over Egypt. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan in great affliction, and our fathers could, not, could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers. He died in Egypt. He died outside the land, and they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. Actually, Jacob bought this site, but here probably seen as a purchase in Abraham's name as his son. So thus far, the Sanhedrin is not particularly offended, although Stephen's emphasis is bugging them. This emphasis of God blessing people outside the land is troubling his hearers to some measure here. He goes on to speak of Moses and the Exodus. And again, notice where God works. Now, there's no temple now. No temple yet at this point in Israel's history. So we're talking just about the promised land. Verse 17, But as the time of promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt. They're being blessed. The promise to Abraham is being fulfilled in Egypt. He promised them a people. Verse 18, "...until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight, and he was brought up for three months in his father's house." And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and in his deeds. Joseph in Egypt, Moses in Egypt. And when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel, and seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, another land, where he became father of two sons. Now when forty years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight, and he drew near to look there, To look, there came the voice of the Lord, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, and of Isaac, and of Jacob. And Moses trembled, and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. This legendary meeting with God takes place not in Jerusalem's temple, It takes place in the desert of Midian. This was as close to God as anyone could ever come. And the revered Moses experienced this encounter outside the land before the temple was built. God has always been working among his people outside the land and before the temple is built. Outside the temple. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, God says, verse 34. And I have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them. And now, come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man... ...led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. Two things here, very troubling to the Sanhedrin. God is working again outside the land. But the other thing here is that God's minister of grace has been rejected. The one that God has chosen was set aside by Israel. Again, these great works of God... Taking place in Egypt at the Red Sea and in the wilderness, not in the land. Verse 37 This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. Turn back, please, to John 5. Does this refer to Jesus? John chapter 5 and verse 45. When Moses says there will be a prophet who will be raised up like me, we ask the question, who is this prophet? Jesus answers the question in John chapter 5 and verse 45, where he says, do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. Now, Jesus will accuse them to the Father, but what, what he means is Don't, that's not the issue here. You don't have to just think about me and what I think about you. Moses condemns you. If you believe Moses, says Jesus, you would believe me for he wrote of me. Moses wrote about me, says Jesus. Thousands of years removed, about 1500 years removed. What on earth does he mean? If you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? He wrote of me. I think Deuteronomy 18 and verse 15 is precisely where Moses wrote about Christ. There will be a prophet who rises up that God will send. Now listen, you guys. He says to the Sanhedrin, You all revere this Moses almost as if he's a god. Where's the prophet that was to come? that was like him. You haven't identified him. You don't know who he is. But it's very possible that you've rejected him. Verse 38, this is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai, referring to Moses, and with our fathers he received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him. But thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol, and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. Think of that phrase. The works of their hands. Think temple. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the hosts of heaven. As it is written in the book of the prophets, Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifice during the forty years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Molech and the star of your god Raphon and the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. So the law Stephen's audience so reveres was not honored even in the day that Moses gave it. The problem with the law is not the law itself. The problem with the law is that no one keeps it. And all it does is continue to expose our sin. It convicts us of sin. It shows us how hopeless we are to obey God's Word. Oh, this golden calf affair. This is an ugly, ugly chapter in Israel's history. One rabbi called it the unspeakable deed. The unspeakable deed. This horrible turning away from Moses and the law of God to worship idols, to turn back to Egypt. But Stephen knows, and he's about to assert the point, that the current Israelites in front of him have committed a much more unspeakable deed against God's... Grace. They have rejected the great prophet. The one, if, if they're to receive Moses, how much should they receive this prophet who is like him? But they rejected him. The idolatrous rebellion of Israel continued right through until the Babylonian captivity, and it continued apace to this day. But before concluding on that point, Stephen moves to the third emphasis. He's looked at the land. God blesses outside the land, it is his promise. But he blesses outside the land. God blesses outside the law in one sense of the term. You, though, the larger point, have rejected the law. You have violated it. You've broken this law, this law to which you're holding. You can't keep it. Now he turns to the temple, sketching quickly the wilderness wanderings, the conquest in the kingdom under David. Verse 44, Perhaps more on this later, but this is an amazing turn of phrase. The tent of witness was ground zero of national worship and identification through to David's day. This is where the people of God met with God at the tabernacle. But when David proposes to build a house for God, a permanent dwelling, God says, forget it. Not you, not now, not Important. I'm going to build a house for you. That is, I'm going to build a dynasty for you. I'm going to choose your house and give you this blessing. We'll let Solomon take care of the temple thing. The offspring of David and the king that would sit on that throne is far more important than the temple. Verse 48. Because the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? The previous discussion of how God made the desert holy by His presence, should have made it clear by now that God is not limited to a temple. The key is to worship God anywhere and everywhere that He leads. Mesopotamia, Midian, Egypt, the desert, Jesus. Wherever God leads, to worship Him there. The key is to get on the page with what God is doing. God's not acted in the dark here with Jesus. didn't just drop down out of heaven unannounced. There's been thousands of years of prophetic preparation for this Christ. Remember, these early believers are taking the Old Testament Scriptures. They're pouring over them. They're proclaiming Jesus from the text of the Bible. It's prepared God's people all along for this prophet that Moses had said would come. He's here. And you're clinging to this place. This land, this temple, has become all important to you. The subtlety of what Stephen is saying is quickly dissipating. But to this point, it is an understated thesis. He's not mentioned the name of Christ as such. He spoke of the prophet to whom Moses pointed. But what he is saying here is, what you guys get off of the land and the temple? It's important in the history of Israel, God graciously gave us these things. We're not setting them aside that way. But you are missing the next step. You're missing the ultimate, Jesus Himself. The land, the law, the temple. But the very things can be, these very things can become idols. They can blind a person to the true work of God. Indeed, this is precisely Israel's pattern. It's her history. And now he turns to the climax of his sermon and all subtlety melts away. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did not your fathers persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. There's Jesus. Doesn't even name him. They know what he means. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. They've rejected the Messiah Moses prophesied just as their forefathers had rejected Moses and worshipped the golden calf. This is the ultimate unspeakable deed. It's not Stephen who has rejected the Word of God. It is these murderers of Jesus. Like Cain, they have murdered their brother. Like Israel of old, they have killed God's spokesman. Stephen... Has spoken the truth. With grace and power, with unimpeachable wisdom, he has proclaimed a radically Christ centered view of divine grace. I think there were probably more things said than he says here. Probably filled out a bit more, but the point now is very clear. Jesus is the one that God has sent, he is the place where God is meeting with his people, if we want to use the word place. And you all killed him because you refuse to repent of your lawless deeds and you join in with your fathers in a long history of rejecting God's ways. The next panel of the narrative talks about the results of Stephen's message. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged. And that's a horrifying word. It's a sad word. Like Cain of old, rather than repent and turn, they're angered. And they ground their teeth at him. They want to eat him alive like ravening wolves. Verse 55, But he, in contrast, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Jesus is the Son of God, and he is alive. Standing to receive Stephen, the church's first martyr. Standing is the posture of a witness. It's the only place we find Jesus standing at the Father's right right hand. He is spoken as being seated at the Father's right hand. But perhaps, as F.F. F. Bruce suggests, Stephen has been confessing Christ before men, and now he sees Christ confessing his servant before God. He looks into the heavens and he sees Christ. Well, that's just a legend. Those things don't happen. You can't see heaven, obviously, say the critics. Listen, it's there, God's there, Christ rules. For this moment, God, in this vision, pulled the curtain back to see what we don't see in the spiritual realm. It's not that the spiritual realm isn't there. It's that we don't see it. In this moment, he permits Stephen to see it, and he sees the risen Christ, the Son of Man. Jesus had used this same phrase of himself, saying that he would live when he says that, well, that really infuriates them. Verse 57, and they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. This is the very thing Jesus had said that led them to charge him with blasphemy and to kill him. And they cast him out of the city and they stoned him. They picked up stones and they hit him till he fell. And they kept going till he was dead. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. A major uh, phrase of foreshadowing. But this stoning, is a, is, it's a hot, messy ordeal. It's a very physical activity. You have to make sure this guy doesn't get away. You've got to pick up stones large enough to kill him. And so they would have stripped down to the waist and put their outer garments at the feet of somebody. Somebody who disagrees with you may not come in and try to stop a mob who's throwing stones, but one way they could get even with you a little bit is to steal your clothes while you've left them aside. So they put them all in the care of Saul because they know this man is with them. He agrees to this murder. It's something Paul will never forget, as chapter 22 will bear out. How a man dies is not easy to dismiss, and Stephen died well because he had been united to Christ by faith. Putting their garments at the feet of Saul, they kill him. And as he dies, verse 59, as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees... He cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Death without terror. The parallels with Jesus' death are unmistakable. We don't have time to chase them here, but they are unmistakable. No reviling, writes one author, no recrimination, no self-defense, even while on his knees he stood tall. Gracious words to the very end. When his cup got tipped over, all that came out was grace. To the very end, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Receive my spirit. With anger and hatred, they pummel him to death, and he falls asleep, meeting the risen Christ. Stephen died like Jesus because he lived like Jesus. So much of what we see him say, so much of what we see in his life, there's so many parallels of his life to Christ, and so there are so many parallels of his death to Christ. He died like Jesus because he lived like Jesus. And it's not going to be any different for us. We may not die this way, but if we Live like Jesus, by his grace, will die like him. How do we filter that in a world where we live, a culture in which we live, where there isn't such hostility toward believers? Where we don't know if we would ever even be hit for Christ, let alone killed. I was thankful for the words of one pastor, Benny Costilla, who's preached here at one, on one occasion. This man was imprisoned for Christ in Romania. Uh, He suffered significantly for Jesus, and so is a man who knows firsthand what persecution is. Listening to a lecture that he gave one time about suffering for Christ, he made the great observation that was so helpful for me. He said, we say often in Romania, it's harder to live for Jesus than it is to die for Him. It's harder to live for Jesus than to die for Him. And what he meant by that was when you're imprisoned, there's really not a whole lot you can do about it. And if they execute you, there's not a lot you can do about it. If you are going to live for Jesus, you will stand for him in that situation. But the hard part is to live for him. So if you live for him, you will die for him well. And that kind of living really crushes the desire to idolize life. It crushes the desire to grasp for safety at all costs. You're living every day that way, willing to lay down anything for Christ. Seeing Jesus is at the center of the universe and at the core of your soul and your being. Your identity is taken up in union with Jesus Christ, so when it comes to death, nothing's going to change. By God's grace, that's how it would be with us should we face persecution. That kind of living producing a perspective on life that is utterly liberating in life and is utterly liberating in death. That sort of courageous spirit that's so beautiful in the people that display it. That courage that holds life lightly and is willing to risk all for Christ. It's displayed in that classic paragraph in the pen of John Patton, 19th century Scottish Presbyterian missionary to the New Hebrides Islands in the South Pacific. Just so happened to be inhabited by cannibals. They needed Christ, the Savior, and people gave Patton so much hassle about going there. It's it's, it's a death wish, they told him. No, it's a Christ wish. That these people would come to know Jesus as their Savior is what motivates me. He writes in his biography, Among many who sought to deter me was one dear old Christian gentleman whose crowning argument always was the cannibals. You will be eaten by cannibals. At last I replied, Mr. Dixon, and here's the spirit, Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years now, And your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave, there to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I am eaten by cannibals or by worms. That's the Spirit, isn't it? It does not hold life dear. It says, eat me. Do whatever you want. I'm going to live for Christ. God may never ask us to die for him, but in your final moments on earth, you will die for him. If you're his child. Your relationship with Christ will come to the surface and it will not prove to be meaningless, nor will it be something you can fake. How you lived is how you will die. Stephen died like Jesus because he lived like Jesus. And he lived a radically Christ-centered perspective of life. We see that in his speech, not only in the way that he dies, but in the way that he thinks. Christianity, let us discern from this passage, is a relationship, not a religion. Jesus is the new temple. Jesus is the meeting place with God Jesus is the fulfillment of the law only in vital union with Him do we possess the righteousness that we might gain by keeping the law if we could. The Sanhedrinists were playing around with all the right stuff. The land that God had promised to Abraham. The temple that God had given through Solomon. They're playing with all the right stuff. The law that had been given to Moses. But they were utterly lost. We can't miss the parallel to our day. Maybe I speak to someone here today. You're playing around with all the right stuff. You've got a church of followers of Jesus Christ. You have a Bible that you read. You have prayer. You have baptism. You have the Lord's Supper. You have these things that God has given to His church, but they have become your idols. You're putting your faith and your hope in the things of the Christian life. The practices, as good as they are and as right as they are, they're given from God, but they have become your hope. Is it possible that as you read your Bible, as you pray, and as you attend church, it's nothing but dead ritual? In the very things you hold dear, Is it possible that you're missing Christ? If so, Bible reading and prayer and church attendance and baptism and the Lord's Supper are weights that are causing you to sink. It's about Christ, it's about Jesus. He is our Savior. And if that concerns you, then I would point you back to Cain. And say, do not become angered and frustrated with those who walk close to God. Repent of your sin and turn. And to that end, may God bring us to know Him and to love Him and to pray in behalf of those who in this day suffer for Christ, who are laying down their life and dying. May we pray for them with diligence May we know of the persecuted church and hold it up high, but may we be living like those who are worthy of persecution. Should God call upon us to lay down our life for Him, may we do so not holding on dearly to life as an idol, but clinging to Christ crucified and risen, knowing that our ultimate joy is to enter into eternity to the reigning Christ, and to be received by Him. That's all that matters. Let's bow for prayer. We come, Father, before You in prayer, seeking Your mercy. As we know that we do not deserve Your grace, we have not kept Your law, But God, we also pray that we would not cling to your gifts in an idolatrous way, but that you would bring us to sincere and living faith in Christ. Draw to yourself anyone separated from him, I pray, in your mercy. And for those of us who know you as Savior and have that confidence in the Spirit, I pray, God, that we would live for Christ so that when we die, we will die In his grace. Through his name we pray. Amen.